You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is Lecture 10, entitled Associations, given in Dornach on August 2, 1922. We must now consider something that I indicated yesterday to a few of you. I referred to the relation between labor and what happens when nature is transformed and elaborated into an object of economic value. In the further course, as we saw, organized labor, divided labor, is caught up, in a certain sense, by capital. And capital eventually emancipates itself and passes over completely into free spiritual cultural activity, so to speak. From all this, you will observe that while there is no such thing as a direct economic value in labor, this has already been explained, it is labor nevertheless that sets economic value in motion. The product of nature, as such, comes into economic circulation by being worked upon, and the elaboration that gives it its value is the real reason why the object of economic value begins to move at least within a certain sphere. Subsequently, it is the human spirit working in capital that keeps the movement going. To begin with, therefore, we have to do with movement. For as soon as we enter the sphere of capital, we have to take into account the movement that takes place through trade capital, loan capital, and eventually through production, capital proper industrial capital. Speaking of this movement, we must be aware, above all, that there must be something to bring the values into economic circulation. To get the right idea in this respect, we must today concern ourselves with a somewhat delicate question of economics. This question cannot be seen clearly unless we try again and again to discover from direct economic experience what can be said about it, and in a certain way to verify things. First, I refer to what we may call economic profit. The question of profit is extremely difficult. Let us imagine, for instance, that a purchase is taking place. A buys from B. In ordinary lay thinking, we generally apply the concept of profit to the seller only. The one who sells is supposed to make a profit. It is, of course, really an exchange between the buyer, excuse me, between what the buyer gives and what the seller gives. But if you think the matter through exactly, you can by no means admit that the seller alone makes a profit in the case of purchase and also of barter. For if the seller alone were to profit, then in the total economic life the buyer would always be placed at a disadvantage whenever a simple exchange takes place. The buyer would always be at a disadvantage, and you will readily admit that this cannot be so. Otherwise, every transaction of purchase would be an exploitation of the buyer, 
and that is obviously not the case. We are well aware that the one who buys wants to buy advantageously, not at a disadvantage. There can be no doubt about that. Plus the buyer, too, can buy in such a way as to make a profit. We have therefore this peculiar phenomenon. Two people make an exchange, and, at any rate in the normal process of purchase and sale, each one of them must make a profit. For practical economics, it is far more important to consider this than is generally realized. Let us suppose that I sell something and receive money for it. I must gain by giving my commodity away and getting money for it. I must desire the money more than I do the commodity. The buyer, on the other hand, must desire the commodity more than the money. This, then, is what takes place in the reciprocity of exchange, both objects passing in exchange, the one in one direction and the other in the other, increase in value. By the bare process of exchange, the things exchanged on both sides increase in value. How can this be? Only in the following way. When I sell something and receive money for it, I am enabled to do more with the money than the one who gives it can do. Conversely, the other person who receives the commodity must be able to do more with it than I can. This, therefore, is the position. The two of us, the buyer and the seller, must stand in different economic situations. The increase of value can only come about through what lies behind the actual process of purchase and sale. Thus, when I sell something, I must be in such a position, economically speaking, that the money has a greater value in my hands than it has in the other person's, while the commodity has greater value in the other person's hands than it has in mine. By virtue of this, person's particular connection with the economic system as a whole. In economics, you will perceive, we cannot merely consider the actual fact of buying, or selling in the abstract. The essential question is what are the respective economic relationships in which the buyer and the seller stand? If we look at things precisely, we are led, as is so often the case, from what takes place immediately before our eyes at any given place to the whole interconnected economic system. This can also be seen by taking another illustration. We can observe the real facts if we take our start from barter. Fundamentally speaking, the line of thought I have just laid out can tell you that barter is not entirely transcended, even by the introduction of money, into an economic community. In effect, we still barter commodities for money. Precisely inasmuch as both parties make a profit in the transaction, we shall see that the important point is not the mere fact that the one possesses a commodity while the other possesses money. The real point is what each party can make of what is received. What can they do with it by virtue of their particular economic situation? To understand it more exactly, let us turn back to the most primitive form of barter. That will throw light on what occurs in circumstances that are economically more complicated. Suppose that I buy peas. I can do many different things with these peas. I can eat them, and so, assuming that barter is the order of the day, and that I have exchanged some other thing that I have manufactured, that is, some commodity, for peas, I get the peas by means of barter, 
and I can, if I like, eat them. But suppose I have acquired a very, very large number of peas, so many that I cannot eat them all, not even if I have a large family. Then I shall find someone who may be needing peas, and I shall exchange them for something that I in turn require. I give that person peas in return for something I can use. Substantially, the peas have remained the same, but economically they have not remained the same at all. Economically, they have changed through the very fact that I, instead of consuming them myself, have passed them into circulation, I myself merely effecting a transfer of them in the economic process. Economically speaking, what have the peas become through this process? Given the necessary conditions, including a statute enacting that everything shall be exchangeable for peas, parenthesis, a sufficient number of peas would have to be produced and it would have to be the law that everything can be exchanged for peas, close parentheses, it would follow that the peas would be money. In such a case, peas would have become money in the economic process. I mean it literally, in the true sense of the word money. A thing does not become money by being essentially different from other things existing in the economic process. It becomes money by undergoing, at a particular point in this process, a transformation from commodity to money. This has been the case with all money. All money has, at one time or another, been turned from a commodity into money. From this you will see once more that with the economic process we always come to the human being. We can do nothing other than place the living human being into the process. The human being is there in the economic process, in any case, as a consumer. As consumers, human beings stand within it from the very outset. But if they play an active part in some respect that does not lie within the sphere of consumption, they enter into quite another relationship with the economic life then as a pure consumer. Such things must be taken into account if we would work toward the formation of true economic judgments, the kind of judgments, in fact, that must above all be formed in what I have called the associations. Within the associations there must be people who by their practical experience can form their judgments on the basis of such points of view. Now the point is that if we have any kind of elaborated nature or divided labor in the economic process, we must investigate what it is that brings these economic elements into movement, into circulation. Yesterday, in another place, see Seminar 2, I said that we ought to bring into our economic thinking the work or labor that is active in the economic process in precisely the same way that physicists, for example, bring the concept of work, in quotes, into their thinking about physics. Physicists do this by developing a formula, wherein mass and velocity occur. Mass is a phenomenon that we determine with a scale. It is with the help of the scale that we are able to determine it. Apart from such quantitative, determinable mass, there would be nothing to move forward in the process of work in the sense of physics. Is there anything similar in the economic process, so that here too labor or work gives value to the objects, and then at a later stage 
the active entry of the spirit or mind gives them value? Is there anything in the economic process comparable, as it were, to the weight of an object in the process of work in the sense of physics? If I describe diagrammatically the progression of the several economic processes, I see at once that something must be there to bring the whole system into movement. To push or press the economic element, so to speak, from here to here. See, there's a picture. Moreover, the system would be still more pronounced if there were a pressure working not only from here to here, but also a suction from the other side, so that the whole system is driven forward by a real force present in the economic process. The economic process would, in fact, have to contain something that drives it forward. What is it, then, that drives economic process forward? I showed you a little while ago how certain forces constantly arise in the case of both the buyer and the seller. With everyone who has something to do with any other human being in the economic process, not at all in the moral but in the purely economic sense, advantage or profit arises. There is no place within the economic process where we cannot speak of advantage or profit, nor is this profit anything merely abstract. Our immediate economic desire attaches to it, and it must necessarily be so. Whether one is a buyer or a seller, one's economic craving attaches to the profit, to the advantage of the transaction. It is really this attachment to profit that generates the economic process and is the force within it. It is the thing that corresponds to mass in the process of work in the sense of physics. You will observe that we have thus revealed something very weighty in the economic process, literally weighty, I would say. Weight, you will admit, is a most prominent thing in purely material products, those products that the stomach desires. It is the stomach that tells the purchaser that the fruit is more advantageous than the money in the moment of the exchange. Here then we have within the human being himself the driving motor. And in other cases too, not only in the case of material goods, there must be such a driving force. You need but consider that the mood or feeling of making an advantageous deal is also present in me when I sell a thing and receive money for it. I know that I, by my faculties or opportunities, will be able to do more with the money than with the commodities that I possess. At this point I am already entering with my faculties into the process. Transfer this idea to the total of loan capital in any economic organism, and you will see, those who desire to undertake or to do anything, and who need loan capital for this purpose, have precisely the same motive force in their need for capital as is inherent in the striving for profit. Only, the loan capital works as a kind of suction. If we regard advantage or profit as an impelling, pushing force, the effect of loan capital is one of suction. Moreover, it sucks in the same direction in which advantage or profit pushes. Thus, in profit and in loan capital, respectively, 
We have the forces of pressure and of suction in the economic process. We thus gain a clear picture of the following fact. Inasmuch as the economic process consists in movement and everything must be brought about in it by movement, we must place the human being in it everywhere. For an objective science of economics, this may be uncomfortable. The human being is a kind of incommensurable magnitude and is changeable. We have to reckon with the human being in so many different ways. But there is no getting away from it. This is the fact. And we must reckon with the human being in many different ways. Now, we have seen that in the process of lending, a kind of suction takes place in the economic process. You know that there were times when it was considered immoral to take interest on loans. It was considered moral only to lend free of interest. Under these conditions there would be no profit in lending. This is indeed the fact. Originally lending did not arise from the profit one derives from it, that is to say from the interest, but it arose from the following presumption. If I lend someone something, this person can do something with it that I cannot do. Take the simplest instance. Suppose that a man is in dire need and that he can alleviate his need if I am in the position to lend him something. Under conditions more primitive than those of today, he would not pay me interest. But the presumption would be that if I too am ever in need, he in his turn will help me out. Wherever you trace the matter back in history, you will see that the presupposition of lending is that the other will lend to me in turn when need arises. It even applies to more complicated social conditions. For the same thing happens when someone borrows money from a money-lending firm and requires guarantors. It has always been the experience of money-lenders that mutual aid plays a great part even in this service. A comes to a money-lender and brings B and C along to stand as sureties. They enter their names as guarantors. In such a case, money-lending firms always count on the probability that if B ever comes to borrow money, he or she will bring A and C as guarantors, or again when B has paid the debt, C will arrive one day and will bring A and B as guarantors. In certain circles this is taken as a matter of course. Economists declare that such a law can be assessed just as well as any that can be clothed in a mathematical formula. Of course, these things are to be taken with a well-known, quote, grain of salt, close quote, that we must always take into account. Our power to do so is part of the mobility of the economic process. To summarize, therefore, we say that originally there was no return for the service of lending except the presumption that the borrower will lend to us again, or if not that, at least will help us in borrowing, as we had helped. Notably, where it is a question of lending and borrowing, human mutuality, or give and take, enters the economic process in a striking way. If this is true, what is interest? Interest, as has already been stated by some economists, is what I receive if I renounce this mutuality, that is to say, if I lend someone something and we agree that this person shall be under no obligation to lend to me. If I renounce this mutual right, the person pays me interest for it. 
Interest, therefore, resolves something that takes place between human beings. It is a compensation for the human mutuality that plays in the economic process. This is, however, something that we must set in its right place in the whole economic process. In doing so, we must, of course, remember that there is no sense these days in studying economic processes other than those that stand entirely under the sign of the division of labor. For it is these with which we are, in fact, concerned. When labor is divided and distributed, human beings grow dependent on the principle of mutuality to a far greater extent than is the case when one not only grows one's own cabbages, but also makes one's own hats and boots. It is with the division of labor that the dependence on mutuality comes. In the division of labor we have a process working in such a way that the several currents diverge. Yet, in the economic process as a whole, we see it come about that all of these different streams tend to unite again, though in a different way, through the exchange that, in the case of a more complicated economic process, takes place with the help of money. Thus, at a certain stage, the division of labor makes mutuality a necessity. In other words, it involves the same element in human dealings that we find in the case of lending and borrowing. Where much is lent, this principle of mutuality is inherently involved, but in this case it can be redeemed by interest, for interest is mutuality realized. It has been transformed into an abstract form as money. The forces of mutuality are the interest, which has undergone a metamorphosis. And what we see quite plainly here in the payment of interest takes place throughout the economic process. This is the great difficulty that besets the formation of economic ideas. You cannot form them in any other way than by conceiving things pictorially. No abstract concept can enable you to grasp the economic process. You must grasp it in pictures. Nonetheless, it is just this that makes the intellectual world so uneasy today, this demand, no matter in what sphere of thought, that we should pass from the mere abstract concepts to ideation of an imaginative kind. Yet we can never found a real science of economics without developing pictorial ideas. We must be able to conceive all the details of our economic science in imaginative pictures. And these pictures must contain a dynamic quality. We must become aware of how such a process works under each new form that it assumes. You will understand me correctly if you will acknowledge to yourselves that there are actually human beings in the economic process, no doubt at its more, more primitive stages, who are quite unable to think in the way you have learned, or are supposed to have learned, to think in the course of your studies. Nevertheless, they are often excellent farmers and excellent economists. They feel precisely whether a given item can be bought or not be bought at a certain price, whether or not it will be advantageous to buy it. Sometimes farmers, for example, who do not have the remotest notion of economic concepts, yet who have attained a certain age and have simply observed the conditions of the market in their district, 
know with precision, without relying on any theoretical concepts, what the picture signifies when they give a certain sum of money for a horse or plow. Of course, they may make a mistake, but you may do that even if you have studied the logic of economics. But the mistakes will not be the most important thing. The picture that is composed in their minds, the picture of a certain sum of money and a plow, calls forth in them the immediate feeling that they can still afford to give a little more money or else that they cannot. They see this directly out of their feeling experience. Now even in the most complicated economic process, this feeling experience must not be eliminated. That is thinking in pictures. To form abstract ideas would be fruitful only if we could say definitely that one thing is a commodity and another thing is money, and we are trading the commodity for money and the money for the commodity. If that were all, it would be simple. As I have shown you just now, however, even peas may become money. It is simply not true that we can grasp anything of the economic process by working abstract concepts into it. Only by working imaginative perceptions into it can we grasp anything of it. For instance, we may have the imaginative perception of peas on their way from the market stall to the mouths of the people. That is one definite picture. Or we may have the imaginative perception of peas being used as money. That is another picture. Even in economic science we must work toward such pictures, taken from what is immediate perception. This means, in other words, that to act rightly in the economic sense, we must make up our minds to enter into the events of production, trade, and consumption with picture thinking. We must be ready to enter into the real process. Then we shall get approximate conceptions, only approximate ones, it is true, but conceptions that will be of real use to us when we wish to take an actual part in the economic economic life. Above all, such conceptions will be of use to us when what we do not know by our own sensibility, supposing we ourselves have not arrived through sensibility at the corresponding pictures, is supplemented or corrected by others who are connected with us in associations. There is no other possibility. Economic judgments cannot be built on theory. They must be built on living association, where the sensitive judgments of people are real and effective. For it will then be possible to determine out of the association, out of the immediate experiences of those concerned, what the value of any given thing can be. Strange as it may sound, it is not possible to determine theoretically wherein the value of a product may consist. We can only say that a product enters into the economic life as a whole through the several parts of the economic process, and its value at a given place must be judged and estimated by the association. How can it be done? How is it that such judgments can be formed, judgments that, if they arise in a true way in the economic process, do actually arrive at the truth? You can understand it best by analogy with any human or animal organism. Human or animal organism assimilates the food that comes into it. For example, the human being absorbs food 
permeates it with tyalin and pepsin, passes it through the stomach, through the intestines. No matter whether the food is animal or vegetable, the first thing necessary is for the food to be killed as it passes through the organism. Its life must be quelled. All life must be eliminated from the food we have in our intestines. Thereupon, what we have in our intestinal organs is sucked up by the lymph glands and called to life again within us. What passes from the lymph glands through the lymph vessels into the blood consists of nature products, plant or animal, that have died and have been called to life again. Now, if you wanted to determine theoretically how much a certain lymph gland should receive and call to life again, you simply could not do so, since in one person a lymph gland must absorb more, and in another less. Not only that, in one person a lymph gland at one place must absorb more, and a lymph gland at another place must absorb less. Digestion is a most complicated process. No human science could keep pace with this wisdom of the lymph glands with all their beautiful division of labor. In such a case we are not dealing with judgments propounded, but judgments working in reality. In truth, between our intestinal organs and our arteries, such a total of intelligence is working that nothing comparable to it is to be found in all our human science. So it is with the economic process. The economic process can be sound only when such a wise, self-active intelligence is working within it. This can happen only if human beings are united together. Human beings who have the economic process within them as pictures, piece by piece, and being united in the associations, they complement and correct one another so that the right circulation can take place in the whole economic process. Of course, the right attitude is needed for such an activity as this, but the attitude alone is not enough. You may even found associations whose members have a great deal of economic insight, yet if something else is not contained within the associations, all their insight will be of little avail. Something else must be contained in the associations, and will be contained in them once the necessity of such associations is recognized. There must be in them the community spirit, the sense of community, the sense for the economic process as a whole. Those individuals who immediately use what they buy can do nothing other than satisfy their own egotistic sense. Indeed, they would live very poorly if they did not satisfy their own egotistic sense. As an individual in the economic life, one cannot say, if someone offers a coat for 40 francs, quote, Oh, no, that price does not suit me. I will give you 60 francs for it. Close quote. That will not do. At this point, the individual within the economic process can do absolutely nothing. But the moment the life of associations enters the economic process, it is no longer a question of immediate personal interest. The wide outlook over the economic process will be active. The interest of the other person will actually be there in the economic judgment that is formed. In no other way can a true economic judgment come about. Thus, we are impelled to rise from the economic processes to mutuality, the give and take between one person and another. 
And furthermore, to what will arise from this? The objective community spirit working in the associations. This will be a community spirit, not proceeding from any moralic acid, but from a realization of the necessities inherent in the economic process itself. Observe observe this in relation to all the discussions that are opened up, for instance, by my book titled Towards Social Renewal. There is no lack of people nowadays who say, Our economic life will be good, ever so good. If only we are good human beings, we must become good. Think of the people like Professor Furster and his kind, who go about preaching that if human beings will only become selfless, if they will only fulfill the categorical imperative of selflessness, the economic life will become good. Such judgments are really of no more worth than to say that if my mother-in-law had four wheels and a steering wheel in front, she would be a bus. Truly the premise and the conclusion stand in no better connection than this, except that I have expressed it more radically. What underlies title Towards Social Renewal, which by the way is also on this website, is none of this moralic acid which can, no doubt, play a great role in another field. Uh, Readers aside, again, toward social renewal, I have it as, it's called the threefold social order, uh, which I don't believe is the complete version, So, but it's uh, the book available. End of readers aside. Rather, the purpose is to show, simply out of the economic facts, how selflessness cannot help being inherent in the very circulation of the elements of economic life. This is the case, even in the details. Take, for instance, the case where a man is in a position to receive loan capital on credit and is thus enabled to establish an undertaking or an institution and to produce something by means of it. He goes on producing so long as his own personal faculties are united with the institution. Afterward, the thing he has built up will be handed on in the most sensible way to some other individual who has the necessary faculties. It will be transferred as a gift, a gift not just from one person to another, but one that takes place through the whole course of economic life. We need consider only how such gifts will be enabled in a reasonable way by the threefold social organism. Here, the domain of economics borders excuse me, I'll read that again, here the domain of economics borders on the social element in the human being in the most comprehensive meaning of the term. It touches on what needs to be conceived for the social organism as a whole. See it also from the other side. I pointed out how in the simple case of exchange, where money becomes more and more important, or indeed where exchange is recognized at all, the economic life enters directly into the domain of law and rights. Moreover, the moment intelligence or reason is to enter the economic life, we must allow what prevails in the free spiritual cultural life to flow into the economic domain. The three members of the social organism must stand in the right relation to one another so that they may work on one another in the right way. This is the real meaning of the threefold nature of the social organism, not the splitting apart of the three members. The splitting apart is always there. The point is rather to find how the three members can be brought together, 
so that they can really work in the social organism with inherent intelligence, just as the nerves and senses system, the heart and lung system, and the metabolic system, for example, work together in our physical organism. That is the point. And of this we shall have more to say tomorrow. The end of Lecture 10